in my youth, I remember going to the to the present border on the Finnish side, climbing up a hill where you can see the lake where my grandparents used to live. And you can see the bay where the house used to be. And it's a very strange feeling to see that and, and to know that I can never visit that place. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place for first-hand Cold War history accounts. And thanks to financial supporter Jack Veselak for providing today's intro. Make sure you hit that follow button in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Timo takes us to the remote Finnish border town of Kusumo. He paints a vivid picture of a childhood overshadowed by his grandparents' memories of their home lost during World War II and their proximity to the Soviet Union. As a child, he was fascinated by the invisible line that marked the end of the world, the heavily guarded border with the USSR. Timo recounts a tense encounter with border guards while visiting his grandparents and he's meeting with a Soviet escaper. He travels to Moscow and Eastern Europe as a young man, which further fuels his curiosity about life on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Timo recalls the austere streets of Prague, the bureaucratic maze in Budapest and a harrowing night at the Romanian border. Timo's book, Tanks and Roaches, is currently only available in Finnish, Estonian and Slovak, but can be purchased via the link in the episode notes. I'm delighted to welcome Timo Lane to our Cold War conversation. I was born in a town called Kusamo. It's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, lots of forests, lakes, rivers, northern nature, and really far away from everything. In, in the town itself, there are about 10,000 inhabitants. But if you want to go to any bigger town, with more than those 10,000, you would have to travel 200 kilometers. So that, that's how remote the place is. And the municipality actually borders with, with Russia. And the town itself, it's about 35 kilometers from the Russian border. Well, what was it like growing up in that area? I think one of the most interesting things was that you could still... You could still feel that, that the war, the Second World War, was not, not so, so far away. You know, I was, I was born in 1968, so, so my child, childhood memories come from the 70s and 80s. And there were still a lot of things lying around in, in the forests. You know, there were small heaps of, of some slimy black substance which I later understood that they were, they were ashes of, of some barracks. And they were things like broken glass, some rusty remnants of destroyed cars, some stoves that were used in tents. And, and, and I remember a lot of tins. And, and some of those tins, I mean, they were rusty tins. All were very rusty, but, but, but some of the tins had raised letters that were like above of the level of the of the tin and so could you you could read something there were some words and i could read that those those cans came from denmark and you know there were lots of things you could find some barbed wire i remember finding an insulator of telephone lines in in trees there were dugouts there was also a hanging tree where, where people say that the Germans hang someone. Must have been a Russian prisoner of war who had tried to ex- escape, I would think. And, and the Germans built a railway to Kusamo, which is also very interesting because, because we don't have a railway nowadays. But, but, but there was one during the war built for, for, the, for the needs of the front. And, and during the war, there was a lot of interaction between, between Germans who were, who were in Finland as, as, as allies, between Germans and the, and the local Finns. And they were very human relationships. So people would tell those stories, and it was all around us. We could see, see those remnants. 
So that was something very, very interesting. What were your grandparents' experiences of World War II? I once asked my grandmother to, to tell about the war, and she told me a story about the beginning, because my, my grandfather was working as a border guard, and, and he happened to be at the border when, when the war started, when the winter war started, because there was winter war from 1939 till 1940, when the Soviet Union attacked Finland, trying to annex it, which was agreed with, with, with Nazi Germany in, in, the, in the Treaty of, of August 1939. So he was, he was working, working at the border that night, and, and my grandma told me that they heard some, some, some noise from the border. And, and they realized that, that the Russians are... are are coming over the border, that the, the war has started. And she told me that, that they, they shot at the Russians from a window and called the garrison in the, in the town, asked, asked for help. And then, then she said they broke the, the telephone line and retreated. A little bit later, you know, they, they sent some, some troops from, from, from the town of Kusamo to, to, to the east. And, and there was a point when, when these group, groups met. So they were those retreating border guards and, and these, these troops from, from, from the town. But they, for, for a while, they didn't, the, 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 the guys from the town, they didn't recognize that, that these people ahead are not Russians, but they are those border guards. So they were shooting at them. So, so there was a moment when, when Finns were shooting at each other. They, were, they, were not, they didn't know what was going on. And I, I, I remember that this, this story was quite interesting because I think it showed that in a war, they, there has to be a lot of mistakes, stupid mistakes, and, and, and things that are maybe not so heroic or, or not, not that don't make so great stories. You know, you know, I had already read some some books about the war, and they were very popular in the in the seventies, where books where people told about their experiences in the war, and they were, you know, there was a certain way to talk about the war, some kind of heroic way, showing that we 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 did great things and achieved a lot of things and so on. Yeah, no doubt about that, but. But war is, I, can, I believe war is not only that. And I think this story that my grandma told me, you know, gave me an idea that the war is something, maybe something different than, than in the books. Because your, your grandparents lived in territory that was Finnish prior to the Winter War and was then at the armistice agreement at the end of the Winter War, that territory was handed over to the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I have I have later understood how big a wound that was. Even if my grandparents didn't live in that area more more than more than three years, but but still losing their home is it, it's been something really really devastating. And in 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 my youth, I remember going to the border close to the, to the present border on the Finnish side, climbing up a hill where you can see the lake where my grandparents used to live. And you can see the bay where the house used to be. And it's a very strange feeling to see that and, and, and to know that I will never be able to go there, that I can never visit that place. But, but that's where my, my grandparents used to live. Were there any incidents of people coming over the border during your childhood in terms of trying to escape from the Soviet Union? Yeah, you know the border. It felt like um, it felt like the end of the world. You know, we didn't hear any news from the other side. There were no border crossings close to Kusama. If you if you wanted to visit the Soviet Union, you could you could go there on on an organized trip with a visa. You could visit Leningrad or, or Moscow, but, but the closest 
border station where you could actually cross the border was was about 700 kilometers from from Kusama. So nobody, you know, legally, nobody came from there and nobody went there. And we didn't get any news from there. But there were some stories. People were telling that sometimes there are defectors trying to, and sometimes de- defectors are actually coming across the border. They were not very numerous. I, I, I checked some, some statistics and I found out that that during the whole period from, from the end of the 1940s till the beginning of the 1990s, it is known that there were about 120 people who crossed the border like that. So how, how many did that in Kusamo? So it can't be very many. But, but there were some. And I actually have some, some personal experience on that as well because I was a little boy when, when, when I was visiting my grandparents' place. That was in the 70s. And we went there with my mom by a car. And we, we, were, almost, we were almost there. The, the, the grandparents' place, which was built after the war to, to a different location, it's, it's located, for, located about seven kilometers from the new border while the, the, the earlier place was about two kilometers from, from that border, but on the wrong side. So we, we almost got there, but then there was somebody carrying a rifle stopping us on the road. And we asked, what is, what is the problem? They, I mean, they, they checked who are in the car. They, they just, he, he just said that they are looking for, looking for a bad guy. I was thinking of some, some bank robber or something like that. My mom was worried. He, she said that, okay, we, we, we are living in a house close to this place. It's, it's only about 200 meters from here. So will it be safe for us to be there? But, but the man said that, oh, yeah, no problem. It's safe. You can go there. So, so we, we, we've been discussing this afterwards, and we understood that they were looking for a defector. And, and I have also been discussing with a friend of mine uh, who was also a kid at that time. She was older than me, so she already went to school. And she was in a school, ba- in a school bus, and we figured out that it must have been the same day. And that school bus was, was stopped. You know, she was living a, a, a little bit further east from, from that place where we were with, with, my, with my mother. And she said that that even if the border guards and, and the driver of the bus, they knew each other, and the driver said that there's no, no extra persons in, in the bus, so, so it wasn't enough this time. So they, they, the border guards a- actually came into the bus and checked it. So th- this is my first experience about the, the defectors. Because I think in later life, you, you met somebody who had crossed the border at Kusumo. Yeah, I did. Because this, this uh, issue about defectors, it, it started to interest, interest me a lot. There was also another story that I heard from my schoolmate. He told that, that, that he, uh, somebody in his family had, had, had seen a, a person in the forest carrying, carrying an atlas and, and showing, showing an atlas to him or to this person, I don't know who, who he or she was, and, and moving his, his finger on the, on the, map as if he was asking where are we and he also also told that when he opened the atlas there were some russian notes between the pages and he put them away very quickly and he didn't say a word and when he knew when he was shown where we where they were he just closed closed the atlas and and walked away into the forest i don't know if that story is true or not but but that's what he told me Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. 
important to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So I, I was very interested in those stories. And, and I found out in an article somewhere, it was very shortly mentioned that, that a certain person from Estonia, from the occupied Soviet Estonia, had crossed the border in Kusamo in 1982. And when I found out about his name, I, I thought that I, I would like to interview him. Actually, first I had to find out where he is. And it turned out that he actually lives in Finland. So, so I was able to meet him. I traveled about four hours to another town that's, that was in the south of Finland. And, and we had a very, very interesting meeting. His wife had made a lot of sandwiches for us. And there was beer and vodka. And it was the table was full of things to eat. And, and when I came, she just greeted me and wished us a nice evening and left. So, so she, she prepared everything for us so that we could freely discuss everything. And, and this Estonian man, he was a very interesting person. He was an uneducated, working class man. But he was very keen to tell his story. He wanted to, to tell his story and, and, um, he even copied me documents related to his story. Um, there were interrogation protocols from both Finland and, and Russia. The Finnish ones were, were they had a stamp secret on, 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 on them. What happened was that he was in the army in 1972. He had some problems in the army and he just decided to escape. He stole a motorbike. And I think he also robbed a kiosk to get something to eat. But he was then caught and he got five years in prison. And during those five years, he decided that he, he ca cannot live in the Soviet Union anymore. He, he had decided to, to defect. When he was freed, he went to Ajara, which was an autonomous republic in Georgia. And his idea was to, to go to Turkey, because Turkey is a NATO country, so, so he thought that maybe that's, that's a good, good way to escape. And he went there to Ajara to, to, to look at the conditions and to, to practice, to try crawling, because he would need to crawl, literally, across the border. But he, he found out that it's, it's not going to work. There were, there were hills and valleys, and he would, he would have to crawl in the valley, in the bushes, but they were, you know, those thorn bushes that would tear your clothes and, and rip your skin. And, and the view of the valleys from, from the hills were so, so good that, that, that you would really have to know very well the, the terrain to be, to be able to take that risk. So he decided that, okay, Maybe I'll try Finland. And so in 1979, he tried to, to escape for the first time. He, he traveled to Karelia, to the Karelian Republic in, 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 in the Soviet Union, and went into forest and started to walk towards Finland. But there were, there were so many rivers there, and they had tributary rivers. That, that, that it was very, very difficult to move forward. And, and, and he simply got lost. He also ran out of food. So he realized that, no, this is not working. I, I have to go back. And, and he was actually also caught by, by the authorities when, when he, was, he was coming back. But he was still that far from the, from the border that he was able to explain that, okay, I was just, I, I was just like fishing or, or, or something. Then in 1982, he tried again. He was a, l a little bit better prepared now. 
So he was able to avoid the reverse. Um, this time he also ran out of food. He, he, he walked in the forest for, for 11 days, but that was the end of August. So they were blueberries and he could survive with the blueberries. And what is interesting in the documents that I have seen and, and what, also, what he also told me, that the system, what kind of um, control they had at the border. And it's, it's actually quite surprising when you think that it's, it's, it's so far from everything and there's nothing, just forest and forest. But there are also, also there were also three lines of, of fences. You know, there, there, were, there were policemen looking for suspiciously looking people already at the at the railway stations of the of the Leningrad Murmansk railway which is about 200 kilometers from the border so even there at the stations they already look at people who maybe would have something in their minds then about 120 kilometers from the finnish border there's there starts the restricted zone where you cannot go without any any special permit that's the first monitored line and then then about 60 kilometers from the finnish border uh there was um north south road and on the one side of the road there was a fence actually i'm not sure about the fence i don't know what kind of whether they had a real fence but there was an at least what they had for sure was was an alarm wire there and raked raked sand and then 20 kilometers from the border, there was a barbed wire fence, which was very tall. He said at least three meters tall. With the upper part tilted towards the east. Which I think shows that the, the main, main concern was that, that Soviet citizens would try to escape, that it was not built against any, any Western spies that would would come to Russia. And what happened, he told me that he dug his way under the fence, but, but there was no, not room enough for his backpack. So he had to leave it on the other side. And this is how, how these border guards got on his trail. And the border guards, they, they had a dog. The dog caught him quite quickly, and it seemed that it's, it's all over. That, that was it. But what happened was that the dog clamped on his arm, but the, the handler had left the dog free because he himself has got stuck, stuck in, in a bog. And when, when the dog has caught the man, man, thought that, okay, you know, I've done my part, so what's coming next? The dog didn't know what to do now. So, so what, what, what the Estonian man did, he, he took the leash of the dog and wrapped it around a tree so that the dog couldn't move. And then he just started running into the forest again. And he also put some mosquito repellent over the soles of his shoes so that the dog couldn't, couldn't find him anymore. Then he told me that he saw helicopters above, but he said that he, it was, he found it hard to believe that, they, that the, helicopter, the helicopter would be there because of him. But I think that's probably how it was. Not far from the border, there was also a chain of soldiers standing in a row. And when he noticed that, he just went down to the ground and lied there for hours. And he said it was so cold and wet and really horrible, but he just didn't dare to move. Then several hours later, he thought that, okay, now maybe I should go between those two men. And he crawled his way through. And after that, there was only the, the borderline left. And on the Finnish side, there was a reindeer fence that was supposed to prevent Finnish reindeer to going to Russia. So it was very easy to, to jump over that. And, and he was in Finland. He, he told that he went to the for, first house that he saw and asked for bread. 
and gave uh, one ruble coin for the bread. And and then then he started to walk along along the road. And and that's where the border guards caught him. Uh, there were some border guards in a the car. They stopped the car and asked, "Where are you going?" And they 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 promised to give give him a ride, but they they took him to the to the police station. So these are Finnish border guards that pick him up because he's yeah. the Finnish side of the border. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that was that was some kind of. I mean, thinking about the whole story, all those experiences, it was a real anticlimax. So what happens to him then? Is he allowed to stay in Finland? It seems that he, he, he was kept in Finland for two and a half weeks. He didn't apply for political asylum. And he told me that he didn't do that because he thought that if, if I would do that, I would get a very, very big sentence in 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 the Soviet Union, but he thought that if I if I wouldn't if I wouldn't apply for asylum, then the, the sentence would be maybe just a couple of years, three years or so. It was there was a general belief in Finland in the eighties that that there's um that there was um there was an agreement between Finland and the USSR that that any defectors would be sent back to 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 the Soviets, or on the other, also on the on the um, on the other hand, if there was someone crossing the border from Finland, he would be sent back to Finland. But but in reality, there was no such agreement. But it was it it was just what usually happened because there was so much political pressure from the Soviet side. So so usually the the Soviet defectors were were sent back to back to Russia. And in this case, when when he hadn't even applied for political asylum, it was clear that he would be sent back. Right, and I guess the Finnish government didn't want to upset the the Soviets during this period unnecessarily with any of these defections. Yeah, exactly. And I I checked some statistics again. I I found out that in the seventies and eighties. Ninety percent of of those who who crossed the border like that as as defectors were sent back. Ninety percent, but it wasn't the case in the fifties or or in the sorry in the sixties and seventies that was ninety percent. But in the fifties and eighties, it was about half. So so this shows that that such an agreement this didn't didn't actually exist so it was very it very much depended on the on the circumstances and and the 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 political situation you know if you were able to do it somehow under the radar or somehow so that soviets wouldn't wouldn't know or pay too much attention to it then you could let them go to sweden or sometimes would they were even given uh, permission to stay in finland but that was that didn't happen very often, and especially in the sixties and seventies, you know, it was really hard. By the way, one interesting fact that that I noticed reading those those uh, interrogation protocols was that this interrogation that was made in in Kursama, there was this, there was a time when when it was it, it was conducted, and according to this protocol, this interrogation was was uh, made from 2.30 at night till 6 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night. And I found this very interesting because I was thinking that, oh, is this how, how it works in Finland? They are interrogating people in the middle of the night. Just an interesting fact. I think sleep deprivation is is one of the uh, the key features of some of the interrogation techniques that I've come across doing the uh, podcast. Yeah, I think the guards are somehow down at the night and and you you can hope that maybe you can get more information, yeah. So as a child you sort of become fascinated by 
the other side of the border and you make a trip to Moscow with your father. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah, that was 1977. I was nine years old. I didn't know about about the Soviet Union at that, that age. But one day my father just suggested that maybe we would go to Moscow together, me and my dad, on a bus trip. And of course I wanted to go. I was very interested in traveling. And now thinking about it afterwards, I think it was, it was a very significant visit for me. It was the first time I saw the Soviet Union. And, and it must have influenced somehow my, my thoughts about, about the Soviet Union. And maybe, maybe it also played a part in, in, in arousing my interest. So what I remember, remember about this trip was that, that everything looked very old and neglected. At the border, I remember that the bus was very, very profoundly checked. They, the Russian, on the Finnish side, there was nothing. But on the Russian side, I, I remember they had some, some metal rods. And they were knocking the, the, the structures of the bus to find out if there are any, any hidden, hidden spaces. I remember that people in, in, in the group, they, 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 they told me that that everything, everything looks old, that everything is like, like, that it was like going 20 years back in time, crossing the border. Cars looked old. The people in our group, there were many things that they didn't understand, and they, they gave false explanations to. Um, for example, we would sometimes see cars like... Um, like a blue car with one red door. And that, that looks very strange. And the explanation that, that people gave to this is that it, it just shows the Russian character that, that, that it's something so insignificant. It's just, it just doesn't matter. If you crash the car, if there's a small accident, you have to, you have to change the door. I mean, the color doesn't matter. I, it's, it's this kind of open, like character. But but they didn't realize that that it was simply that you couldn't get a blue door. You couldn't find it anywhere. So if you if you found a red one, then then you would grab it and be be feel happy that you have a door. That it was a problem of of not not getting not finding those things. Yeah, so the five-year plan said they were going to produce red doors for the next two years, and hard luck if you needed a blue door in that period. Yeah, probably, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to ask you, so you're crossing into the Soviet Union in the south of Finland, so you go through Vipuri, which was the second city of Finland prior to the the winter war did you see much of vipuri we stopped there it was on, on our way to leningrad so didn't we didn't stay there for long but we had we had a stop off maybe a couple of hours so we could walk in the town and and visit visit a hard currency shop vipuri also looked very neglected and Again, the people in the bus, they, they had their own explanation for that. Explanation for that. And they, they thought that the reason is that, that Russians think that it's, it's a Finnish town. It's so close to the border. Maybe one day Finland will get the town back. So it's no sense putting any resources to, to Vipuri. I mean, they didn't know much. I mean, it was, it was clear that, that they would never give Vipuri back, first of all. And the other fact was that the whole of Russia looked the same. It wasn't better anywhere else. Did any Finns remain in those areas once they were handed over to the Soviet Union, or did all the population move 
into Finland. Everybody moved moved over to Finland, and that's that's something something quite unique during the Second World War, because I don't know maybe maybe you know better, but I don't know any any other other situation when when only empty land changed changed the owner and people who had lived there for centuries they just had to move away but that's what happened happened with with those territories the only other times that i could think of would have been pomerania and silesia in east prussia where the vast majority of the population went into what the, into the new german borders because that territory was handed over to the soviet union and poland yeah yeah that that must be must have been something similar yeah so so what is interesting is that nowadays when when we think about these territories in russia close to finland the ones that used to belong to finland they have very very they have hardly any finns living there nobody stayed there but but on the territories further away you can find finns and karelians who have lived there for for centuries but these these former Finnish areas are very, very Russian. There were some some Belarusians and and Ukrainians also who moved there. But but they are in in in, in the Leningrad Oblast. They they uh, they also changed the the place names, so they even don't have they don't use those Finnish names anymore. No, and when you consider it's eighty years now since those territories were were lost 90 years actually so yeah that that whole finnish culture even if there were finns still living there would sort of die out over time particularly as the you know the whole place names are being removed and their whole identity was being removed yeah i think it it died out the 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 moment finns moved away because those those who moved in they didn't didn't know anything anything about the history they they settled in in those houses where where Finns had you had been living before and and I know that they were very they were considered very very good houses they were very popular everybody wanted to 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 live in in a former Finnish house but but they didn't even know who had lived there how they have lived what kind of life and culture they had it all disappeared in a moment. Did you ever go to find your grandparents' house at the end of the Cold War when you could visit those border areas in Russia? No, because the point is that you still can't. Even today, I cannot go there. I will not get a permit because, because it's, it's on the Russian border zone. Yeah, it's, it's too close to the border. But but there was a there was a period of time in the nineties when when my mother was able to visit that place. And that was that was Yeltsin's time, and at that time they would give they would give they would arrange some special special visits to those places, special permits. And my mother was on a couple of such such visits. I mean, the first one was was very complicated because because they had to first they tra- had to travel about two hundred kilometers south in Finland, then across the then cross the border there, and then they were taken by helicopters back to north, to the eastern side of of the of this big lake, where they would have motorboats that would take them to the to the western side, and it would take whole day to get there, and then you finally got maybe. One hour or half an hour to to for 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 seeing seeing the place itself, but my mom was there and and he took a lot of photographs there. All the buildings were were destroyed, and I think actually they were they were burned down by Finns because when the winter war started, they had to burn down the houses that that Russians couldn't couldn't stay there. And that was a very very cold winter, so so it was it was uh, an essential thing. So there were no houses, but you could still still find 
you, you could still see where the fields were located because because there were no trees growing there. There was still some kind of hay on the places where the where the fields were. And also you could see some remnants of I don't know the word, how do you call it? When you go to swim in a lake from a sauna, so there is this kind of wooden structure on, oh, on the lake. Like a, like a pier. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And you could see see in the water, you could see some some pieces of wood which were remnants remnants of that pier. Yeah. Wow. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more, or follow the link in the episode information. Must have been quite emotional for your mum. Oh yes, yeah, I think so. And her grandmother was dead by then, I'm presuming. I'm not sure about that, but 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 he was maybe too too ill to be able to go there herself. Yeah. But maybe he heard about the first trip. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, your your trip to Moscow, you you get what I would describe the travel bug. And at the age of 16, you you're traveling on your own and you're going around, you know, London Paris, Rome, but you are still fascinated by life beyond the Iron Curtain. So when did you go to places like Prague, Hungary, and Romania? Was that late 80s? Yeah, the first time was 1986. That's when I visited Prague, Budapest. I wanted to go to Romania, but I was sent back from there. And I also visited West Berlin. I took a train across the East Berlin. What What do you remember most from those visits? If you start with uh, Czechoslovakia, yeah, yeah, I started from Czechoslovakia. I remember when I came to the border. I took a train from Stuttgart to Prague, and on the Czechoslovak border. I was really surprised because they, because they had immigration forms in Finnish. So as I showed a Finnish passport, I would get a Finnish language immigration form. And, and I remember I was, I was playing with the idea that I would, I would when they asked ask about, the, about the purpose of my visit, I would, I would write espionage. But, but of course, I realized that, okay, maybe that's not a good idea. I mean, nowadays, everybody knows that don't do jokes. At, at, Definitely at, not. Yeah, no yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd probably still be there and not on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just wondering that, uh, that it, I mean, they had, a, uh, they had a form in Finnish. If, if I would uh, fill it in, in, in Finnish, no one would understand that. So that was a bit funny. But anyway, I, I came to Prague, and the first thing that I noticed, even before the train stopped, was, was that the town looked so clean. There were no, no garbage cans even, which made it even more strange. That how, how can, it, how can every, everything be so, so clean? And it seemed to me that there was more space somehow. I mean, Prague is an old... European city, but but it still it seemed it felt very different. It felt so peaceful. There was less traffic, less advertising, not so many shops, and also I remember that the soundscape was different. You know these these Skodas and Bartburgs they they make a different sound like like Western cars, and they were very few cars actually. Also, everything was very cheap. So a lot of nice things, actually. 
But from the negative side, I remember that people working in service industry, they were, they were very unfriendly. I hadn't got used to that. And somehow I, like, I got even more, more annoyed as, as I should have. I also remember those slogans that, that, that they had instead of ad, ad, adverts. Like, like there, was, there was a slogan at the Prague um, railway station saying, along the Leninist path towards further development of our socialist fatherland. It's a nice snappy slogan there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and from Prague, I, I went to Hungary and Budapest. So tell me about Budapest. In Budapest, I had, I had a very interesting experience because, first of all, I, I met people there, which was nice. I, I met some friends there and, and I could stay, stay, stay in a family. But there was an interesting problem. I had to register myself in 48 hours after crossing the border. Usually, the hotels would take care of that. But because I was, I was staying at, at a private house, I had to take care of that myself. It said in, in a paper that I had received at the border that that should be done at a police station in 48 hours. So I went to a police station and I thought that, okay, let's do this and then we are done. But I was told that it's, it's, it's not the right police station, that they, they are not doing this. I have to go somewhere else. But nobody seemed to know exactly where's the right police station. So, so I was giving another address in a different part of the town, and they, they said, okay, you can go there. They probably do that. But when I de- went there, I was told that, no, 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 this is not the right place. And again, I was sent to, sent to another address, and then, then to another. So it was the fourth police station that actually agreed to register me. All the others, they only had said, we don't know where, but you just have to register it. It's very important. And and the funny thing is that then when I finally found the right police station, they told me that they don't have forms for the registration, that I have to find the form somewhere in the town before they can do it for me. But I got those forms somewhere. I don't remember where it was anymore. Then it turned out that I need the ID number and the signature of the person who, who took me in his house. So I had to travel outside, you know, that was a little bit outside of Budapest. I had to travel there and back. And finally, when I was registered, it was, it was 11 o'clock at night. It was uh, 45 minutes before I was supposed to get registered before the deadline. So that, that, was, that was an interesting experience and really, really taught me something about the socialist system. You said that you had trouble getting into Romania. I, I took a train, night train, from Budapest to Bucharest. And my Hungarian friends, they had warned me that, that Romanians, they are very strict. And, and things are very badly in Romania. I thought that, okay, maybe they have some issues, you know, Hungarians and Romanians. The Dutch is saying that, but... But at the border, I realized that that was really the case. It was really true. The border control on the Hungarian side was, was quick, no problems. But on the, on the Romanian side, you know, they, they turned my bags upside down. They searched, searched everything. And they were, the first moment when, when the, the border guards came, came, came to, the, to the train, they, they asked if, if, if we would have any drugs, pornography, or Bibles. They were those three things. I didn't have any of those, but I had a radio receiver that I had bought in, in Hungary. A very simple radio receiver, nothing special. But first they wanted me to pay customs for that radio. And that was a very, very big sum of money. It would have been at least twice the, 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 the price of the radio. And they gave me two options, that, that if, if, I, if I don't want to pay, that I could... I could leave them the radio, or if I want to keep the radio, I, I should go back to Hungary. So in a moment, I just decided, okay, I'll go back. And they just told me to pack my things and get out of the train. And, and they showed me, showed me the direction and said, 
just walk in this this direction along the rail along the rail there were some people in the train who had seen the whole process they were they were wishing me luck through the window and then then i just started walking it was so dark i couldn't i couldn't see anything it was absolutely dark and i didn't know where i was going i i was just walking and i was wondering maybe maybe i'm walking to hungary right now that i was expecting there to to be some kind of bridge because i thought that maybe there was a, a border river or something and then i would walk walk to hungary and i heard i heard some some noise in somewhere ahead a metallic clang which which sounded like a like a um, sound of a rifle when someone is carrying a rifle so so <laughs> i i thought maybe i should start coughing and shuffling my feet so that they could hear that there's somebody coming because i didn't want to get shot or anything because of any misunderstanding and and yes it was a soldier and it was um, a rifle but that was that was on the R romanian side obviously and i explained the situation he didn't speak english but he he shouted there was one tiny tiny light somewhere in the distance and he shouted towards that light and then from the sound from the echo i could figure out that it's it must it must be a rail yard a railway station rail yard and i was taken into the building inside also there was no light they had this strict austerity campaign in romania at that time and they showed me a chair and told me that okay this is where you will spend the night in this chair and i sat there in a dark room and well there was nothing to do after a while i i slept i, I you know i went to sleep but then at about one o'clock i was woken up and taken to an interrogation and it was really really interesting it was uh, there were two men uh there was a candle on the table and it was really like a scene from a movie i mean really one of the men spoke english i i didn't like him he called me my friend all the time and it 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 annoyed me already he had a lot of questions for me he did say a couple of times that take it easy i'm just doing my work but whenever i answered to his questions he he started to lose his temper and he repeated the same questions again and again so he was asking the main main question was who is the person you wanted to bring this receiver to i had to explain again and again that that there is no such person i'm i i'm not bringing this to anyone that i bought this because and this is actually the reason why i bought it as i lived close to the russian border i wanted to listen to russian fm radio stations but the um fm frequencies in western europe and eastern europe were different so so with the western radio receiver you could not get those russian stations so i wanted to wanted to get a receiver with with those eastern frequencies by the way later it turned out that i could actually pick only one or two stations because because this the area on the other side of the border is there are so few people living there that they don't have many relay stations so you could i could only pick a couple of stations but anyway this man he was he was not happy with my answers and and he 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 threatened me with uh, three months of um, imprisonment he said that you will stay in a prison for three months i was thinking that that i have done nothing wrong so they can't do that he's just he's just talking but but i must admit i started counting when 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 do when do the school start i counted okay hmm, 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 i will be about one month late from school but i guess they will understand if if i explain them i also thought that that maybe maybe the finnish ambassador will find out out about this and 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 this will be settled in a shorter shorter time then finally they brought me a paper it was all in romanian so i didn't understand it 
and, and I was told to sign it. Still today, I don't know what I signed. And they told me that, it, that you don't have to read it because it's in Romania. You won't understand anyway. Just sign it. But I, I, what I saw in, the, in this document, I saw my name and I saw the name of the, of the receiver. And they told me that they will formally arrest me for the night and confiscate the radio. And I will get it back in the morning. And in the morning, I, will, I, can, I can get back to Hungary. So I, I thought that, okay, this is a formality. I, so I signed. And, and that's what happened. I went back to my chair. About five o'clock in the morning, I, uh, the English-speaking guy came to me again, and he wanted to read my West German newspaper that he had noticed I have. And in the beginning, when, when we had met, he, he asked me, what is life like in Finland? And, and I was wondering, that, what, what does he mean? Because you don't usually ask that kind of questions in the West. So I said, well, normal. I don't know. It's normal. And, and, and I, I remember so well how he replied. Normal. That sounds great. In Romania, life is difficult. But in the end, it went as, they, as, as I was told. So I got my radio back. Uh, they forgot to give my passport back. but. But before stepping on the, on the train, I, I asked for my passport. So I even got that. So I got on the train and I went back to Hungary. And I knew that I must get back to Romania again. This is an interesting country. Well, after an experience like that, I'm not sure I'd want to return to Romania. But, um, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no stopping you, Timo. <laughs> Well, I have to say that it was a very interesting train trip again. This time I got, got to Bucharest in the end. But, but what was interesting was that there were some Polish smugglers in the same compartment with me. They were carrying huge bags back and forth in the corridor. I think they, they, they were smugglers in two compartments, but I think mine was the main compartment. And I noticed that they, they had put some Hungarian coffee packages under them behind the backrest. And, and I, I thought that, that they, they, the Romanians will find, find them, that it's, it's, not, like, it's not going to work. I mean, that was what I was thinking. But, but of course, the, the Poles knew better. They, they, they gave a bottle of vodka to, to someone. And so, so the the Romanian border guards never checked th this compartment. And that was good for me as well, because I was there and they, nobody, nobody checked my luggage. And I thought after the border, I thought that, okay, that was interesting. I thought it's all over, but it's actually, it was only, everything was only starting because what happened was that they, they put the curtain in front of the window between the corridor and the compartment and they, started selling the coffee because on the on the romanian side on the romanian stations there were people getting on the train romanians they didn't come from 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 budapest because they were not free to travel but those people who got on the train on the romanian side they they quickly found out that that there's a plain place in the train where you can buy coffee and they started to come to to my compartment to buy the coffee there were two Polish guys. Every now and then, the, they, would, they would open the door a little bit and a hand would appear from outside having a stack of banknotes. And the other guy would take the banknotes and one guy would take the banknotes and another would, would give the coffee. And it seemed to me that everybody knew the price because there was no, no discussion about prices or anything. Everybody knew how much and how it works. By the way, <laughs> those Romanian banknotes, they, they, were, they were funny. I mean, they were so worn out. The color was disappearing. And they were, they were turning white. And, they were, and the paper was, was so soft that you can, with your two fingers, you can... Take from the middle of the note, 
you can you can lift the note with your two fingers, and it would hang like a handkerchief. Okay, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but not very much. They were very interesting notes. So this pro this process um, took a long time. They had a lot of lot of coffee. It took hours to sell them, even if they were selling all the time. Uh, but when the the coffee ran out, one of the guys took a screwdriver and climbed up to the ceiling using the the shelves for for luggage in, in climbing. And up in the ceiling there was some um, ventilation grade or grid. He just opened some screw, screws, maybe four screws around this, and then there there opened a hole which leads to, to a space between roof and the ceiling. And, and that space was full of cigarettes, chocolate, and more coffee. And they continued selling, them, sell, selling that. And I think the whole train, it was a long train. I think everybody knew that there are things on sale in this train. And, and this, this was, for me, that was a great lesson about the food situation in Romania. So you begin to get interested in Estonia, particularly. What, why the fascination with Estonia? I think the reason is that Estonian language is the, the only relatively big language that is related to Finnish, apart from Hungarian. Hungarian is, is also related. They are both Finno-Ugric languages. But but Hungarian is so different from Finnish that that I don't understand anything if if somebody speaks Hungarian. But Estonian was was closer to Finnish. It would be it would be easier to understand at least something for someone whose language is so different from from all the all the other languages in Europe. It's 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 very it's very special. It's very significant that there is another nation in this world who who belong to our family who are, who are our relatives and they were estonians and they were living on the other side of the iron curtain very close to us tallinn is only 80 kilometers from helsinki but they lived very different lives Everything was different in Estonia. I thought that in Estonia I could learn more about the Soviet system, more about socialism, about the, the real life. And it would be easier because I would be able to learn Estonian in some, some, some time. So I guess that's where the interest comes from. So how do you further pursue this fascination with Estonia? I decided that I will not become an engineer, as was the original plan. So, uh, so after that, I actually, I actually did my uh, compulsory military service in 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 Finnish Lapland, and and I went to study to to a university in Oulu, and that's where I studied started to study Finnish, and I was also able to take courses in Estonian, and and study Estonian by myself. So by 1991, I already knew Estonian. I was uh, able to speak fluently. I understood people without problems. And I really wanted to get into Estonia because after all those, uh, those big changes in, in Eastern Europe, it, it was clear that now the focus of change is turning into the Soviet Union. And I wanted to see what's happening. So... We're going to have to leave it there for this week, but don't miss Timo's next episode where he's at the epicentre of Estonia's struggle for independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road 
The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information